Well, we are going to go ahead and jump in tonight. I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming tonight. Uh, every year, this is the third summer that we've done these where we just meet throughout the summer. We call these table talks where uh, we eat together and then we have a time of teaching and then we discuss some of what was taught uh, around the tables. After we are done, we will uh, have uh, sheets for the tables. And also, if you're on the group, our church group me, the questions are also on the group me if you want to look at your phone for that later. But we'll just spend a few moments discussing some questions afterwards around our tables. And then around 7.30, we'll wrap up and uh, those who have children can go pick up their kids from the nursery next door. Also, we've got a number of these. You may have seen these over the last few weeks, a little handouts for the schedule for the summer. And just a reminder, this is a lot going on in the next few days because we have our first one of these tonight on Thursday and then church on Sunday. Then our next table talk is next Tuesday. So please don't uh, miss that. Uh, We will be back here, Lord willing, next Tuesday, March, May 30th. Wow, that was a slip up. Uh, May 30th. And then we'll be back Thursday the week after that. And so you need one of these to keep track to make sure because we're not always going to be here on a Thursday. Uh, You guys just finished school for the year. How are y'all feeling, Greg? Feeling good. Feeling good. <laughs> Jerry, how are you after? Yeah, Greg's got his. I just got done with school face on. I like that. <laughs> yeah, no, really, really excited for the summer. Thank you. Well, Jerry, can you pray just for the whole series for this summer, yeah, and then to. we'll dive in? Love to. Father, we are so grateful uh, that you have given us your word. Your word is um, powerful. It is uh, sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, brings us such joy, such conviction. Um, encouragement. We pray for uh, for this summer series. We pray for this summer. We pray it'd be uh, a summer of tremendous sanctification. We pray that we would see folks uh, come to love and know the Lord in a greater way uh, than ever before. And Lord, we pray that you would um, also do a great work in um, some that have yet to know the Savior, that you would grip their hearts and give them the faith uh, to believe the gospel. We thank you for this um, just incredible book, and that you gave um, reveal revelation to your son, and then to um, an angel, and then to John, and now to us, that we would be able to um, live our life in a manner worthy of the gospel. So we commit this summer to you, we commit this night to you, um, and we ask that you would do more than we could ask or imagine once again um, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you would turn with us to Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, and I'm just going to stand up just for a moment here to illustrate this. So you may already be familiar with this, but just as a word for when you're studying Revelation, uh, this letter was originally written to seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, Western Turkey. And uh, John was, was exiled to the island of Patmos, which you probably know that, and we'll talk more about that next Sunday. The island of Patmos is right here, and this is where John was uh, essentially a prisoner uh, during this time at the end of his life, probably in his 90s at the time, around maybe 95 AD, and he writes this letter, and we know John had spent some time in Ephesus. Early church history says he spent apparently a good deal of time in the city of Ephesus with the church there, so he's exiled here, and he writes this amazing book of Revelation uh, here on this island. And what you'll see is in chapter, if you look at chapters 2 and 3 of your Bible, of Revelation, you can see the, each church is being addressed. You see this one after another. So, and if you look at the order in which the churches are addressed in chapters 2 and 3, if you just look at the headings in your Bible, you'll see it starts with Ephesus, right, the beginning of chapter 2, and it moves up north to Smyrna, and then where does it go? It goes to Pergamum, 
and then it goes to Thyatira, and then it goes in chapter 3 to Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And so essentially what you have is a circular letter. Uh, this letter was written for all these churches. Seven also represents perfection, and it represents really God's total church, his global church, the church for all time. But you can see how he literally sent the letter with some messenger, and it just went from church to church to church in that order around, even in the order in which John wrote, the, wrote Revelation originally. So we're going to keep this on the screen just to have a visual picture, uh, picture of where this originally went, but clearly it is relevant for all of God's church in all of time. Greg, could you read for us uh, the first eight verses, and then we'll dive in? Yeah, all right. Revelation chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Our plan is to try to make it through the first five chapters of Revelation this summer. The majority of our weeks will be spent in chapters two and three as we work kind of methodically through those seven churches. And so we're very much looking forward to that. Just before we even dive into Revelation, Revelation can be an intimidating book. Uh, it, it can, uh, I spent a lot of my Christian life avoiding much of Revelation just because I was so confused. Uh, any word about why we are sometimes hesitant to go there and, and why we should go there? Mm -hmm. I got a kick ass. Somebody was quoting Chesterton who said, St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision. He saw no creature so wild as the one of his own commentators. Like, the people <laughs> commentating this are wilder <laughs> than, the, than what you see in the vision. And so I just think it's, you know, it's so full of symbolism. It's hard to tell what is and what isn't. And uh, there's just a lot of calls that make it different than any other book, but, but so exciting, so exciting to study. And when we get to verse three, we'll see how necessary to study. Well, I mean, the genre itself is in the apocalyptic um, tradition. And so, which uses like you said, it's highly symbolic, it's graphic symbolism, it's shocking, um, violent at times, um, and it's intended to provoke through reading about these images, like not necessarily trying to actually draw them out, but as, as we read this and it, it, it affects our minds and the way we think, it's meant to provoke, um, you know, provoke us to think, you know, why, why this, why this? Because you'll see throughout the book, like there's, there's images, there's things that, are, that are, are mixed together that in real life couldn't happen, but there's a purpose why those things are mixed together and kind of blended together um, 
in this book. And so uh, we look at chapter one, verse one, and I know we got a little more intro to say, but this is important to the symbolism aspect. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, literally to signify, to communicate by symbols. Okay, so it's intentionally symbolic, uh, the, the way this is communicated. And as we're going to see, it's not detached from history. It's not detached from reality. No, it touches on our, our lives and the lives of Christians, um, but it's a very symbolic book. And so I think the reason we get, people get scared of this, we kind of shy away from it, is because it is not a familiar type of, of genre. It's not a familiar um, type of, of literature. And we read this and we're like, what is going on here? You know, stars and horns and swords coming out of mouths. That's just not what we're used to. And so I think if, if we get the right frame of reference, though, we understand what's going on in terms of this, this, this literature and, and how it functions. We actually get so much out of this book. As we, you know, we went through some of this in Sunday school, like there is so much here if we are just patient and careful that the symbolism actually is full of amazing things for, for us now. Mark, why did you lean toward doing this this summer? Because this is, um, I'm so excited about it, but tell us why. Yeah, I, I wanted something that would be interesting and also heavy on application. And I think that this revelation is equally intriguing to, I think all of us are intrigued by revelation, aren't we? Aren't you a little bit intrigued by revelation? Like, I, I don't, none of us feel like we have a perfect grasp on it. None of us do have a perfect grasp on it, but that, that we, we want to understand it better. It's intriguing, but it's also extremely applicable to our lives. I think it lends itself actually to good discussion. So I thought those two things together made it interesting. And jumping off what Greg said, um, here's, here's one of the reasons I think there's so much vivid symbolism in the book. Like you've got multi-headed beasts coming out of the sea. You've got a drunk prostitute on top of a giant dragon who's drunk with the blood of the saints. You're like, this is in the Bible? What in the world? This doesn't sound like Galatians. It sounds very different from a Pauline letter. And here, why is this in the Bible? Why did God include this? And it's not a perfect illustration, but just, just take something almost a cliche. Just take Hollywood, okay? When you watch um, the Oscars and you watch Emmys and you watch the red carpet and you see all these gorgeous, brilliantly rich people come out of the cars and limos and they walk down the aisle and they're all dressed absolutely incredibly, right? Does it have a certain kind of glamour, a certain kind of deceptive glamour about how wonderful and amazing this lifestyle is, right? And so what you see on the surface is incredibly attractive. It's very fleshly. It's, it, it seems very, very appealing to us. And yet, if you wanted to unveil what's really going on in terms of the morality of the place, you would want to use very, very shocking symbolism that shows you how grotesque the morality is of, of that very same setting. Does, do you make, does that make sense? So in, in that culture, the Roman Empire was, was so glorious and so attractive and so alluring, and the Caesar's power was such uh, an overwhelmingly deceptively attractive thing, and people wanted to live for that glory. And Revelation is saying Rome and all other wicked governmental systems and worldly systems, behind the glamour and glitz is a drunk prostitute on the back of a dragon feasting on the blood of the saints. <laughs> it's not as glamorous as it looks. When Rome is putting Christians to death, it is actually a grotesque act of, of, of sacrilege against the God of the universe. And so we need imagery to help us reshape our imagination so that we see what's really happening in more of God's perspective. And Revelation gives us God's vivid perspective on the evils and the glories of what's all around us all the time. 
So let's, let's dive in. Uh, Greg, can you, can you give us just, uh, th- there's a lot we could say here, but just a word about approaching Revelation. There's different um, ways of approaching the book. Can, yeah. you, can you just quickly give us a, a quick uh, understanding of how this works? Yeah, so, you know, again, with the type of literature it is, um, one of the difficulties has been trying to figure out, okay, you know, what's, what's kind of the big picture here? Um, how, do, how do we understand when is this time frame and all that's going on? When is this actually happening? You know, who, who is it talking about? And so there's been a number of different perspectives throughout church history that, um, that people have kind of taken um, in terms of this. One is called, and this is a position we definitely do not endorse or hold to, called the preterist position. Preterist simply meaning something's past. Um, and the preterist would look at this and say, maybe to John, it was still future, but to us, everything in here has already happened. That's the preterist view. They, the, and there's a lot we could go into with that. Um, but every, everything in here has already happened. It's talking about the events that took place in uh, AD 70 when uh, Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. Um, and they fit everything into that. They say it's an early date uh, in terms of when this book was written um, in the in, you know, 60s, whatever like that. Um, and one, we just reject that view. Uh, I don't think there's any good evidence to say that Revelation was written early. Uh, I think the overwhelming evidence, it was written in the 90s AD towards the end of the reign of the emperor Domitian. Um, so the preterist view is one view. Um, another view is called the historicist view, where it tries to say, okay, Revelation is a, a history of, of, of the church. And so it looks, as you go through like the main visions and the bulk of the the bulk of the book, it's like, okay, well, th- this, this, uh, this horse with this thing here is referring to this particular point in AD 29 when this happened, or, you know, they try to locate the Crusades or the Reformation at different points. And um, again, it, it's, it's, it's noble in the sense that it's trying to say, okay, it's talking about real things, but it's, it's so arbitrary and subjective as to what you would say, you know, when, it's just arbitrary as to, well, you're just picking what sounds good to you, basically. Um, and and th- that view is almost entirely abandoned today. I mean, yes. I, I don't know any, anybody, really, who endorses the historicist view today. I'm thankful. Yes. Um, it's not, not one to recommend. <laughs> one of the very more common ones, probably the most common one, I would say, and at least in the evangelical world, is the futurist view, um, which tends to see the bulk of Revelation as speaking about the future things that have not happened, future from our perspective even, not just from where John was, but from, um, you know, the whole of church history is still what we, the majority of what we read, especially chapter four on, would say that has not happened yet. That's still future events. All of it is, yes, there's still application for us today um, from that, like moral application and things, but it's still talking about events that are in the future, hence a futurist view. There's several varieties of that. Um, that we're not going to even begin to touch on. Um, and then there's another view. Uh, I don't know if I like the, the term philosophy of history view. I like idealism is probably a better way to say it, but it, it, it kind of says revelation um, is really just dis- describing the battle between good and evil throughout history. Um, it may or may not touch on specific things. It's just kind of a, a, a very symbolic way of looking at um, God versus Satan and, um, you know, giving a, just a, a very graphic way of thinking about the fight between good and evil. And guys, I'm, I'm really reducing this down 
Um, these positions are a lot more, more detailed than this. And then there's the view I think we're going to hold to, which is similar to what uh, Greg Beal holds, which is kind of an eclectic idealism view, which there's merit um, in, you know, some of what we've, you know, a lot of what we read in here, or at least in the first few chapters, like the, what's going on in the seven churches, that actually has happened. Um, and, you know, unlike the futurist part, we'd say there's actually a lot in the bulk of the book that applies to us right now that's talking about our present experience. Um, but it's, it's the present experience of the church in every generation, not just trying to locate specific, you know, events and all of that. It's like, no, this applies to every church in every generation because of the nature of the forces that are arrayed against the church and what God's doing and how Satan's working. But there's also future elements. I mean, Jesus has not come back yet. There's not a new creation. There's not a new heavens and a new earth. There's not, um, you know, a glorious kingdom in which Christ is reigning and evil is put down. We, we don't see that yet. Um, and so that's why we say eclectic. It kind of draws from all of those, but ideal, idealistic in the sense that, you know, whether you're in the first century church or the 21st century church, this still applies to you. Um, and so that's why we say this is a very applicable book um, that no matter where you live in, in the history of the church, this is speaking to you. And so this speaks to us right now. Um, and thankfully, though, the, the parts we're going to look at really don't get into all the debatable issues right. as much. Like, you know, we're going to look at the, the, the seven churches and stuff like that. And that's pretty much, we'll see a lot more agreement within um, the perspectives um, on the seven churches, which is a good thing. And, and all of that kind of just shows there needs to be a humility when we teach yes, it. Yes, absolutely. So many godly people with different views. Right. Yes, very godly people with different, different views. So let, let's dive into our opening uh, verses here. Let's look back at the first three verses of Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So the, the most basic thing we can say about this book is it tells us what this book is about. That the first phrase here, the first opening line, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I agree with most people on this. I think it's got a double meaning. I think it's the revelation of Jesus Christ because it's coming from Jesus Christ. It's his revelation. It comes from the Father, through the Son, through an angel, to John, to us. It's quite a chain there of, of individuals. But it is the revelation coming from Jesus, but it's also the revelation that is about Jesus Christ. So I think it's a double meaning. I think it, the, the revelation is from Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. And, you know, it, we talk about how strange the book is, but it is soaked in a, a high view of Christ. Mm -hmm. You can't go anywhere in this book without seeing Jesus in his exalted state so often throughout this book, and Jesus is saturated throughout this whole book. So th this is a revelation from and about Jesus Christ that is given to us for our own blessing. Now, let me say a word about this word blessed here. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud and the one who hears and keeps this, uh, this, this book. You know, it struck me, someone was talking about this. John is talking about how blessed we are if we pay attention to this message, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And let's just jump ahead to next week's text. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos 
on account of, and here's the same phrase, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I find this amazing that John says, if you really want to be blessed, you need to get to know the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he says, I'm in jail on an island because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I think we need to reevaluate how we use the word blessed when you think about this text. John says, if you want to be blessed, it's all about the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And by the way, I'm in jail for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Isn't that a different understanding of the word blessed than we normally use in America? In America, we talk about blessed when things are comfortable, convenient, coincidentally helpful for my schedule, working the way I wanted it to. It was a God thing. Exactly what I wanted to happen, happened. It was amazing. God was clearly at work. Well, I'm sure God was at work. But what about when my schedule gets messed up? Or what about when I'm faithful to God's word and his testimony and things do not go my way circumstantially? Even then, God's true blessing is there. And John writing from a prison, an island, basically, an imprisoned, imprisonment on an island is saying, the true blessing of God is worth more than my freedom from this island. Being blessed and knowing and being true to God's word is more important than me being free to do whatever I want back in Asia Minor. Uh, me being alone on this island, me being trapped in this island in my 90s is a bigger blessing than forsaking God's word and doing whatever it is I wanted to do uh, this week or this month or this year. So thoughts on the blessing that we get from reading and obeying God's word. I uh, exactly. Oh, go ahead. No, you, you first. Go, please. Okay, all right. Um, <clears throat> I think of Philippians 1, 29 and 30. Uh, Paul says, for it has been granted to you, gifted to you, literally, uh, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And the whole point is, um, you know, we talk about God gracing us with things. Suffering is a grace on our lives. It's an opportunity for our faith to be refined, for our faith to be demonstrated, uh, for our faith to be proclaimed, to, that we testify. Um, <clears throat> but we, we typically think, you know, we're all about, you know, here, especially at North Ave and in our theological tradition, you know, God's the one who gives faith. It's not something we work up. It's something God gives. God gives suffering in the same way. It's a gift. Um, and it's a blessing to suffer for Jesus. And we, we have to keep in mind the, the big picture when we say that, that we, we are heir, if we're Christians, we're heirs with Christ of all that new creation, that new heaven, that, that perfect thing God's going to make at the end. We're heirs. We're, it means we're going we're to inherit that uh, to live in and reign with Christ and dwell with God. Like that's our true riches and our true home. And so to say, you know, I'm suffering now, I'm suffering in a context that's all of this is going to come to an end. It's not going to last forever. Um, all the things that we have right now can be taken away and they're going to be gone one day. And then God himself will be our prize. And in that day, like, well, you know, getting into second Corinthians, it's like the, the, the weight of what is coming, the glory of that will so far overshadow anything that we lose now. Um, that it's, it's not even worth comparing, as Paul would say. And so I think John's picking up on that same theme. I mean, he, he's, he's suffering for preaching Jesus, and that's how he can say he's blessed, because he knows, he knows Christ. He knows what's coming for him one day. So even if he dies, you know, right after this, it's like it's only going to be better for me. That's to live as Christ and to die as gain, is what Paul said. And I think this fits so much with what we're seeing in the Providence series um, on Sundays at 2. Blessed are you, Matthew 5, 
12 when others revile, 11 when they revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If John was talking to us right now um, and was here, I think he would just say this is just far worth it. And so we need that we can and should and um, rejoice in our sufferings. Where they produce perseverance and character and hope. And, um, and sometimes that's through being persecuted because of the gospel. And sometimes that's just what God providentially brings about in our life. But it is all good. That is what we know for sure and, and beneficial. Otherwise, it's not happening to us. And so they, um, y- you have to love uh, when you're reading this to think, God gave it to Jesus, like you said, gave it to an angel, gave it to John, gives it to us, reveals it to us, and we wouldn't know anything about God unless he had revealed it. That's the, his revelation is the only, otherwise we wouldn't know a thing. So through general revelation, what we see outside, but now from God's word, that's what's exciting about this summer series is to, to see he's revealing what we need to know to live a godly life. Yeah, the, the, the picture here is God's drawing the curtain back on reality and he's showing us what's really going on. Yeah. What, what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, what we think in our head is so often not what's really going on. It's so often we're deceived by, by whatever we're looking at. And the temporary uh, things around us control us. And God is saying, no, 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 I'm going to pull back the curtain. I'm going to show you what's really going on. Those who are suffering for Christ are headed towards triumph and reigning with Christ in eternity. Those who right now are reigning in evil are one day going to be brought to justice by Jesus. Those who are, th- those who are really at the end of their strength are going to be renewed by God's strength. They're going to be brought to that final place. And all the trials we go through that make us want to give up, God says, the one who conquers I will give him from the tree of life. The one who endures, the one who conquers, I will give him of the water of life. Don't give up. Don't, 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 don't uh, sell it out at this point. Stay with it. Stay faithful because the reward will absolutely be worth it in the end. And so Revelation's meant to make us reevaluate how we are uh, valuing the things in our life. Let, let me read an excerpt here from, uh, this is Nancy Guthrie's book on Revelation. She uses her imagination to think of a first-time reader of the book or listener of the book at church. Listen to this. I thought this was interesting. Imagine you're part of one of those seven churches in Asia who first received this letter. A reader has stood up in the midst of your gathering to read a letter that John the Apostle has addressed to your church. You're on the edge of your seat. And then he begins to read. Very quickly, you realize that you have some adjustments to make in the way that you listen and process what he's written, because this is not like the other letters from Paul or Peter or James or even John that have been circulated and read aloud to your church before. The reading of this letter is more like a dramatic performance. Everyone in the room is having a similar experience. Their perception of what is really happening in your church and in the world is being altered by the experience of entering into John's dramatic visions. As you walk back home past all the Roman architecture and evidence of Roman rule, you would find that you're now seeing through the lens of the vivid counter images contained in John's letter. You've seen an alternative reality that is true reality, and it has changed how you see everything else. John's blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy has proved true. God has blessed the reading of his word, and it is evidenced in the way in which all who heard it read in your church are thinking and feeling, singing and suffering, worshiping and waiting. And so the idea there being that it's going to reprioritize how we think, how we feel, how we react to things. 
what we're hoping and what we're mm-hmm. fearing, all those things begin to be re, reorganized in our hearts, and they begin to be actually set up, and they, they sort of correspond to what's actually true, but it's so hard sometimes to remember because of what we're, what we're deceived and distracted by. Yeah, and seven times we're going to be blessed through um, Revelation. 14, 13, 16, 18, 19, verse 9, 20, verse 6, 22, 7, and 22, 14. So we're not surprisingly seven times maybe the, that we're blessed through here. But uh, I remember Dr. Byer who taught Daniel in Revelation. I didn't do so well in that class, if I remember right, <laughs> partly because of just chapters two and three. I didn't know what was going on. I should have watched this first. But he just said, we win. That was the way he started every class, you know, and, and I think it was part of this blessed that it gives us an accurate picture of what's really going on. And we win, and we shouldn't walk around in the doldrums acting like we're, we're defeated here. So let's, let's keep going here. Let's look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of kings on earth. Just a word here about the Trinity. You see the Trinity very clearly uh, in this text. Him who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father. Now, th- the next one's the strangest, isn't it? The seven spirits who are before his throne. This is probably alluding to maybe two different texts in the Old Testament. It's a little confusing. In Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, it describes the Messiah, and it speaks of the Spirit, and it uses seven different descriptives of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. The Spirit of justice, the Spirit of this, and the Spirit of that, and it goes on. So the, the seven uh, attributes, essentially, of the Spirit could be what's being referred to. Also, in Zechariah 4, uh, the menorah, the, 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 the seven-lit candle in the temple, represents the Spirit's work in Zechariah chapter 4. And so, however we're looking at it, it refers to the fullness of the perfections of the Holy Spirit, And then you have Jesus in verse 5, and grace and peace is only coming from God in in the Bible. It's not coming from Paul. It's not coming from other people. It ultimately always comes from God. But a word about the Trinity here in this text. I mean, it's it's clear. Um, I mean, if there's anything about it, like we see the Father, we see the Spirit, and we see the Son. Um, Again, there's one God, but uh, existing eternally in three divine persons, um, distinct but united. Um, and it is, you know, one of the things here, like when it talks about, especially in verse four, like grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, you know, we, we say, okay, that's referring to the Father. That's not to say that those aren't true about the Holy Spirit and about the Son. It's just the Father is typically of given the priority, given the, the, the preeminence, when we think about the Trinity, Trinity, the Father is typically comes first. Mm-hmm. It's not to say he's greater than the Son or the Spirit, that he's somehow better than them or more than them. It's just he is the Father, and a Father is going to have that kind of priority, logically speaking. Um, and so it's only right for us to, to think that way. It's why Jesus said, you know, when you pray, say what? Our Father in heaven, Paul often, you know, I give thanks to the Father um, and stuff like that. Again, not denying or diminishing Jesus or the Holy Spirit in any way, just recognizing there's, you know, there, there's a trinity, there's three divine persons, and they're not exactly, um, the Father is not the Son and so on, and each one is not each other. They are distinct in that way. And so there's nothing wrong with saying, starting off, you know, him who is and who was and who is to come. But you think about 
that that threefold phrase there in in light of the fact he's saying grace to you and peace. You know, God is able to give grace and peace, not just to the first century church. You know, we read that and it's like, man, what would that be like to hear that? And so on and so forth. It's the same to us today. That grace and peace that God had for the church then is the grace and peace he has for his people now. Um, Why? Because he is, he was, and he is to come. No matter where you find yourself in the history of the church, God has an abundance of grace and peace for you. And I mean, maybe you need to hear that tonight. He has an abundance of grace and peace for you right now. He never runs out. He never, you know, gets short on supply. There's never a supply chain issue. We understand supply chain issues, you know, from COVID and everything that happens. We don't always have what we want when we want it. God never has supply chain issues when it comes to grace and peace because he's always there and he always has more than enough. Part of that blessing, right, that we saw in verse three, grace and peace. So let's look at the description of Jesus in verse 5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, and then there's several ways he's described, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. That faithful witness, the, the word witness in the Greek is where we get the word martyr. It did not originally mean someone who dies for their faith, obviously. It meant someone who was just testifying, witnessing of their faith in Christ, and then eventually so many were killed uh, using the Greek word martyr, there were, there were so many people killed giving their testimony that they, the Greek word martyr actually became a term for someone who dies for their faith, die, dies for their witness. But Jesus is the ultimate example of one who is faithful in his witness no matter what it cost him. So when we look to Jesus as the ultimate one, the ultimate example of one who died for us, who, who gave his blood for us, who shed his blood for us. And so we see here, he is the faithful witness. Number two, he is the firstborn of the dead. Clearly, he is the first one to be resurrected to new life. Um, you know, Lazarus was not resurrected to new life. Uh, he, he, he was raised to new life, but then he died again. Uh, the, the first one resurrected to never die again is Jesus, and Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, he, that in all things he might have supremacy, Colossians 1 would say. And he is also the ruler of kings on the earth. Greg, a word about his sovereignty over the kings of the earth. Yeah, this, this is something that is true right now. I mean, you think back to the Great Commission, what did he say? All authority, you know, we usually start with go and make disciples. The Great Commission starts with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That, that's supreme kingly authority right there um, that Jesus has been given uh, over everything, over every nation, over every king. Um, and that's ex- exactly what John is affirming here. He is the ruler of kings on earth. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we are meant to keep that phrase in mind. All the kings, these earthly kings, with all their ambitions, with all that they're doing, guess what? They are subject to the authority of Christ. They can do no more, no less than he permits them to do. They are absolutely under his his power and his rule. This isn't just something, yes, there's going to come a day when his, his, his reign over things is made more public and visible. We long for that day, but he's reigning now from heaven over everything. Like all the hope that we have in the book of Revelation is, is solid because Jesus rules over it all. Um, and so we need to, to keep that in mind as we go through the letters we're about to read, as we go through four and five, and if you want to read on beyond that, at no point at any time is Jesus not ruling over the kings that are on the earth. All these evil kings that we're going to read about, again, they are subject to his authority. And so keep that in the back of your mind um, as we read through this, because there's a lot of hope and peace that comes from that. I mean, think about the instability of the world we live in. If we didn't know God was in control, 
like that would really be bad. Um, but it, no matter how hard things get, we know that Jesus is in control and nothing is going to come our way except what he permits by his wisdom and for by his plan and for his glory and our good. As uh, Brother Ron said at the retreat, you know, it doesn't come our way unless he per- personally signs off on it, meaning nothing comes our way except what what he knows is best for us. And so just we remember that because persecution is going to be bad. We read all of you know, the, the beasts and how hard it's going to be and what's going on in the world. And we think, how could I get through that? Remember, Jesus rules over it all, always at every moment, all the time. And that's kind of like the, the Providence series again mm-hmm. in, that yeah. we're seeing. But I think it was Kevin DeYoung that says, our candidate always wins. Jesus is always one we can count on that. He's in control. And so it may be that the guy in office is our guy or not our guy. Uh, that's really a little bit irrelevant here. Jesus is in control, reigning over all the kings. And um, well, that's comforting. Uh, that makes for um, very enjoyable living knowing that's the case. Yes. So this is, continues to be very comforting what we hear next. So this is in the middle of verse 5. It may be a new paragraph in some translations here. It says, To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John so often links the love of God explicitly with Christ's death on the cross. I just John can't talk about the love of God for more than about a sentence without getting to Christ's death for us. And here he says, he loved us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. So I think this, this freedom from the sins, again, incorporates two elements. There, there is freedom from the penalty of sin. That's wonderful. Freedom from the penalty of sin. But there's also freedom from the power of sin. And I think that's what John's getting at here is Jesus' blood was shed not just to free us from the eternal penalty, which is absolutely enormous, but his blood is available right now to give us the grace we need to fight sin right here in the here and now. So if there's sin that you're struggling with, that I'm struggling with, whoever, if there's sin in your life that you're struggling with, you're, you're having a hard time defeating it, it's coming back and, and, and it's taking over. It's, 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 you know, it's, it's taking the advantage at times and you're continuing to give into it. Here's what God is telling you. I've got the blood of my son and it is all sufficient to guarantee all grace at all times so that I can give you the strength and the power to overcome that sin. You do not have to continue doing it. No one who is a born-again person can say, I have no choice. I'm just going to keep sinning. <laughs> you, 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 don't, you can't say that. He's freed you from the penalty of sin, but right now there is unlimited grace available to free you from the power of sin. And the power of sin is already objectively broken in the Christian's life. Sin will no longer have dominion over you, Romans 6 says, because you're no longer under its sway. You're no longer in the realm of darkness. You're now in the realm of God's Son. But God is saying, I, I will give you the grace to provide a way out when you are tempted. Even if you are tired, even if things are not going your way, even if it's been a hard week or month or year, there is no excuse ultimately for sin. And God will give you the grace. And here's the thing. Do I actually want the grace to not sin in the moment of temptation? Because if I want it, it's mine. The grace is freely available. He has freed us from our sins by his blood. The grace is right there. It is available. And if I will simply seek him, I will find him if I seek him with all my heart. And so if, I don't, if, if I'm not defeating my sin, I want to go back and say, how serious am I about fighting my sin? Yeah. 
Because if I really want to take advantage of what God has offered me in the gospel, he has unlimited resources, unlimited grace. You don't have to give in. I mean, sometimes there's temptations where you feel like there's no way I can say no. It's such an over, it might be in a, conver, it might be in a, in a, in a conversation where you, you know something, it's just, it's genuine gossip. You know something true and bad about someone else, and you know that there's no justification for saying it to these three people. You know that there's no, you can't say it's a prayer request, that's a lie, it's just gossip. You can't say, you know, it's a lie. You, I should not say this about this person. But right in that moment, you have this extraordinarily strong urge. I don't know why, maybe it's because saying it makes you feel powerful or like you know things, you got the inside scoop and they'll look at you as being more knowledgeable or an insider or whatever, whatever, or maybe it just makes you feel puffed up because you're, you didn't do what they did, whatever it is. You have this urge to say what you should not say. In that moment, you don't have to give in because all you have to do is say, God, in your own mind, just say, God, help me. I don't want to do this. It's, it's wrong. Help me. And the Lord will give you the grace in that moment to resist. It will give you the grace in that moment to, to not give in. And that, that grace is available for any sin, for all sin. We can simply turn to the Lord and say, God, help me. And the Lord has abundant mercy to help us in those moments. Mark, I love what you're saying. And that reminds us of First Corinthians 10, 12 and 13, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I, don't you love no temptation? And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above your ability. But with the temptations, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we just saw his power and now we see, which just makes you feel very protected and safe, and now we see his love. And you see, if you turn over a page or two to chapter 5, uh, verse 9, I love this verse. We're getting to, um, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, this is talking about the Lord Jesus, you ransomed people for God. He delivered us. He ransomed. He paid the price for us. You are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought at a price. Therefore, we can honor God with our body. He's freed us from this sin. And what a glorious thing um, to live under that kind of, kind of going back to the grace and mercy that we saw uh, there in verse 4. It's ours. Um, for the day. And so, Mark, I think you're exactly right. It's never God's fault when I sin. That grace is there. And I need a race to him um, immediately when that temptation comes. We all do because there is uh, freedom from it in the gospel. And let, me, let me just add one more thing to that. So just using that gossip as one illustration. In, in the moment when I'm tempted to say something negative about someone else, because it makes me look like an insider or I have information or whatever the silly thing is that we do, but we really do that stuff. If, that's, if that temptation comes, in that moment, I am seeing more joy and glory in that status it, gives, it supposedly gives me of being the insider or whatever. I'm seeing more joy and glory in that than I am in Jesus in that moment. So I'm actually making an idol out of myself and I'm, I'm disobeying God's, I'm throwing God's word under the, under the train so that I can try to get a little bit of glory for myself in that moment. Whereas repentance and what genuine faith would look like is, God, show me that you are superior. You are better. You are more glorious, more enjoyable, more satisfying than whatever status I think I'm going to get through this sin, which is going to be all messed up in the end anyway. But show me that you're better than that thing. 
It's not simply grit your teeth and bear it. It's Jesus is superior to the pleasure this sin is offering me. There, there is real, there's real pleasure being offered, but Jesus is superior in his pleasure. So it's that ability to say, no, this is gonna leave me feeling, in, this is gonna leave me down in the dirt at the end of the day. I'm gonna feel terrible if I do this. I need to find superior satisfaction in Christ. Can we come, oh, go ahead, Greg. Um, I was gonna shift a little bit from the sin talk to the other thing. Did you have something else to Just say? Just one on? more quick thing yeah, maybe on this. Well, not quick thing. Let's spend two weeks in Romans 13. That's what it would be about <laughs> the right amount. But look at that last part of verse 3, and we cruised over it pretty fast here. But for the time is near. And I think what we're seeing in John putting this in here is to say the time is near. There's no more time to sin anymore. Like, let's, let's quit the nonsense. There's not time for that. And you might remember uh, Romans 13 is, is just so good on this. Um, if you take a second to go over to that, the night is far gone, verse 12. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. There's no time for that. The time's near. It's coming, right? Or it's too short. We cannot continue to operate in that way because we're free from it uh, positionally, and now practically we can be too. But instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So I just think it's so freeing to think about this um, today, right out of the gate in Revelation 1, of how he has delivered us from that sin. Sorry, Greg. No, that's good stuff, man. Um, never apologize for that. Um, so I, it's interesting the majority of the places, at least as, I've, as I read it, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I, I think this will hold. Usually when it talks about the love of God, it uses past tense in the New Testament. Mm. He loved us, John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world, Galatians 2, you know, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Um, this is one of the, the fewer places where it actually has it in the present tense. Mm. I mean, look at that again in verse 5. To him who loves us. That's active, present tense, Christ loving you. Um, I don't know. I just, I just thought mm. that, was, that was pretty cool because you don't see it phrased like that very often. It's not that it's not true, but it's just it's, it's typically the love of God is, is, is mostly focused on the way that was expressed in the cross. And I mean, even here, it's connected to the cross, but it's, it's almost like we need this reminder. Yeah, look, God loves you now. Christ loves you now, Christian. Uh, with a love that's bigger, deeper, wider than, than you can fathom, you know, draw from Ephesians, the height and depth and width and le you know, length and breadth and all the dimensions that you can get. Like, it, he loves you now. Um, and it is a love that is so vast that you get to bask in it for all eternity and you'll never exhaust its depths. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, Gui just played with you. If you're not feeling loved, I think, Mark, you said it well. What God is revealing to us through this is what's really true. The truth is you are. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how will he not along with him now graciously give us all things? He loves us. Greg, thanks for pointing that out. It's now. He loves us now, and he loves you right now. And to bathe in that and to, again, um, operate out of that mode, 
will be vital for your life tonight, tomorrow. The way you treat people, the way he loves us is now the way we can love each other. And uh, that's so rich. And another thing to go along with that is, if God loved you when you were dead in sin, how can you possibly think he doesn't love you now that you're alive in Christ? If God loved you when you were living in a complete love of the world, complete love of sin, God loved you enough to send his son, and then he chose you, saved you, converted you, brought you to faith in Christ. If he showed infinite love for you when you were a rebel against God, how can you possibly believe that his love is dried up today? It's just, it makes me think of Romans 5. For if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So if God loved us when we were enemies, how much more now that we're his children? Mm. I mean, th- there is no reason to doubt God's love for those who, are, who, who know the Lord. I think John Owen, you know, if, if you guys know John Owen, I mean, he's a hard Puritan to read, one of the smartest Christians who's ever lived. I mean, just a huge mind. Truly, people debate whether he was like the most brilliant Christian outside of the New Testament, you know, who ever wrote. And and John Owen, of all people, uh, says this amazing quote. He says something, I'll I'll butcher it, but he said, there are few ways we can grieve the heart of God more than to doubt that he loves us after all that he's done for us. Mm-hmm. If, we, if we know the Lord Jesus, to doubt the, 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 the current love of God for us grieves the heart of God. It grieves God because why? He could not do more than he has done to demonstrate his love for us. I mean, giving his son for us is unfathomable love. It's unimaginable love. What would you give your son for? He gave his son for you. And God is, is looking at us saying, listen, I'm working the troubling circumstances for your good. There's an eternity in my presence of never ending, ever increasing joy in a new creation and we grumble and complain and act as though God is not really for us or that God does not really love us. And that, that it can grieve God in, in that sense uh, because he, he could not have done more to display the love than he has. And logically, what, what could we ask for on top of that? You know, if we're not convinced by that, by him sacrificing his son, then what would convince us? And I just don't think you can come up with anything. Let's move to the last few verses here. Verse 6, and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, there's, there's, there's too much here we can really talk about in the last couple minutes that we have, but just anything y'all would like to pick out to talk about before we wrap up here from those verses? I'd like to hear Greg talk about Alpha and Omega. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, well, what was interesting, you know, and this it's one of those things we talked about keeping humility when we study a book like this. Um, all the, 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 the most important things, um, you know, the death of Christ, our security in him, the need of endurance, you know, the sure return of Jesus, the defeat of all his enemies, new heavens, new earth, like the, the most important things, there's no disagreement on. It's clear together. We, we, we embrace that. It's like, this was very fascinating to me because I, I texted them about this. I was like, so what do you think about verse eight? Who's saying this? Because all the only referent we have 
is um, it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, um, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, what's interesting is obviously in verse four, it refers to God the Father um, that way. Um, him who and so, is and who was and who is to yeah, come. Yeah, him who was, who is, and is to come. Um, I'm trying to find where I put that in here, the, the people. Um, yeah, so different scholars view this differently. And this is, again, the only reason I'm really focusing on this is just in our interpretation of Scripture, on points that are a little less clear, let's be very humble and not dogmatic, okay? Um, and what's interesting, verse 8 here, um, let's see, you've got Tom Schreiner, Greg Beal, uh, a guy named George Beasley Murray, who was an older scholar from a previous generation. They look at verse eight and they say, well, this is just God in general, like the whole Trinity speaking. You got folks like James Hamilton, the Lutheran commentator you mentioned, uh, Brighton. They say, well, this is clearly sp uh, speaking to, uh, to God, God the, the Father. Father. You've got uh, John MacArthur, John Walvert, an older scholar, Andrew Fuller, if you've, you know, the great Baptist theologian of years past, Matthew Henry, uh, Dennis Johnson, if you have an ESV study Bible, he's the one who did the Revelation notes. They say this is referring to Jesus. Hmm. And then that NIV study Bible that we have, the biblical theology one, has a guy named Brian Tabb who says it's referring to both the Father and the Son. So who is the Lord God here? Uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, that's the best I'm going to be able to give you. Uh, I, I'm going to want to put more thought into that. Um, and, it, you know, it's one of those things, all of those options are potentially valid from the text, and you're not going to be doing violence to the text if you prefer either one of those. And that's one of those places, guys, just study it, think about it, reach a conclusion, and, you know, then move on. Don't, don't be like, you know, if, if you, you know, it's got to be the Father, and if you don't believe that, then you're compromising the book of Rev. It's not what's going on, okay? <laughs> it's just not what's going on. Um, some texts like that, there's, you know, we, we might be like, it, it could go this way, it could go that way. I'm not 100% sure. So let's just be humble uh, with stuff like that. The point is, God is all three members of the Trinity, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, meaning there's no point of history, no point of reality, no point of anything where God is not the beginning and the end. And that is our absolute hope as Christians because God is, he was, and he is to come, and he is almighty. There's only one almighty and it's God. And that's, again, we take that hope with us throughout this entire book. As we think about the struggles and persecutions we go through, we think about the forces that are arrayed against us. They are not almighty. God is almighty all the time. And that's, that's good news. Can you pray for us, Greg? Yeah, absolutely. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, for what we've been able to consider just for a few moments, Lord. And we know there's more we could look at. There's more we could dive into. But God, we're thankful for what we've been able uh, to unpack from just these first eight verses of Revelation. Lord, what an amazing book. Um, and Lord, I do pray as we've, we've we prayed at the beginning, we've talked about, Lord, help us be humble. Um, Lord, as we read, uh, Lord, may we seek to give glory to you. Um, and may our ability to do so only be enriched as we work through uh, this, the first few chapters of this book. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'll be with us in these next few moments as we discuss um, how to apply these things maybe a little more, what we've learned, things this has made us think about. Lord, help us, uh, as Hebrew says, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Help us speak the truth in love to one another and help, uh, help one another grow up and mature 
in Christ uh, through our time together. God, again, we're so thankful, Lord, for a church that is so committed to just unpacking your word as it is. Uh, thank you for a, an environment to do this, Lord. Thank you that we still have the freedom to do this um, in this country. Uh, so help us avail ourselves and make the best of this, these few moments together. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.